Welcome to the Speckled Truth Podcast. This is the only show dedicated to the conservation of the trophy trout population from the East Coast to the Gulf Coast. Here, we go below the surface to discuss what happens when science and anglers work together for a cause. So gear up with the crew as they talk about all things big speckled trout. Get ready for the slimy, salty truth, better known as the speckled truth. Hey everyone, I want to welcome you back to the Speckled Truth Podcast. Admittedly, it has been a minute, and uh, for no other reason than honestly just work in the Air Force has been totally uh, taking my time away, and so I haven't been able to produce these, but I got a unique opportunity, uh, came up, and I'm speaking with none other than Mr. Cliff Webb. Sir, welcome to the Speckled Truth Podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Chris. It's uh Appreciate you having me on your on your podcast here. It's really great to be here. Sir, uh, the pleasure is all mine. I'm humbled. So for those who are listening, uh, sitting here in Mr. Cliff's house in Corpus Christi, and uh, <laughs> I'm just looking around right now, and he shared some of the amazing stories about some of these fish that just, uh, these skin mounts, really, that are just littering the walls, and uh, even a unique story about a 33, 33 and a half. Yeah, 33 and a half. Definitely want to hear that story. But before we get in too far into the conversation, it's a pretty customary question that I ask, and that is for you to tell us a little bit about um, yourself and then okay. how you got into fishing. Okay, well, you know, I'm, uh, I'm 65 years old, and uh, I've got two boys, and uh, my wife and I met when we were in eighth grade and uh, been together since we were 15 years old and uh, been married 45 years. And she was a big-time bass fisherman when I met her. Just was so We hit it off real good. And uh, I think that uh, if anything, I've enjoyed uh, being a father more than anything is uh, raising my two kids in the outdoors and fishing with them and, and seeing them have the excitement that I have about the outdoors and the, the thrill and the passion with big trout. And, uh, you know, what's so different with me is uh, – I didn't start out with popping cork and dead shrimp. I started out trophy trout fishing with the uh, Muckaroy and Chatter mm-hmm. Allen and Dick McCracken. And, uh, you know, my dad was a game warden. He came down here. Uh, we moved down here after Hurricane Carla. It destroyed our house in Sea Drift in mm-hmm. uh, 1961. Uh, my dad was a game warden there in Sea Drift, and the Hurricane Carla came, and uh, we took off to the fish hatchery in St. Marcus. And when we came back, there was nothing left of our house, not one single thing. And so we packed up and moved to Corpus. And uh, the Parks and Wildlife said, uh, you know, Mr. Webb, are you afraid of anything? He says, no, I'm not afraid of anything. He says, well, I got a good job for you. There's over 100 illegal netters in Laguna Madre. I want you to go down there and see if you can clean some things up. They're just uh, wiping out all of our big trout and uh, taking them back to Mexico and schools of reds. And so he moved down here in the 60s and uh, started taking some of these netters out. And, man, it was absolutely war down here. The, the amount of fish that I saw in those nets were just unbelievable. He uh, he would chase these guys, and uh, he he had a, a, a game worn bow that had two 150 Mercury's on it, a big old metal hull game worn boat. And he'd take a big black tarp and he laid over the top of that boat. He'd get right in the middle of Bath and Bay and anchor where nobody could see him at midnight. And he'd wait till these guys get their net halfway in the boat. And he'd fire that boat up and run over there and they couldn't run because they had half the net in the boat. And the amount of big fish that came out of those nets were just unbelievable. And that's, uh, that's kind of when I met Chatter Allen and Dick McCracken and and those guys and Jack Muckaroy, well, they were good friends of my dad, and they were so fired up that my dad was down here doing something about all these commercial guys that were killing off our big trout and all of our big redfish. And uh, so my dad would drag for those nets with a big hook behind the boat, and while he was doing that, he would drop me off with those weight fishermen, Muckaroy and McCracken. He'd drop me off and say, here. they say, here's a web boy. The web boy's coming to fish with today, and they'd drop me off, and I'd have a big old wad of bread in my pocket in the canteen, and that's it. That's all I had, and... Uh, Muckleroy would give me a, a, a silver spoon he hammered out with a red worm behind it, and he'd tell me, look, boy, don't you wave your arms around like a seagull. Don't cast till you see something. He says, don't throw at them bottom feeder red fish. He says, wait till you see them big old black logs and trout. That's what you want, boy. And so I caught my first 30-inch fish when I was nine years old with mm. McCracken, and I sight-casted it. And I'll never forget that fish come up out of the water and just, you know. Um, I think I had 10-pound tests on a Mitchell 300. And he did a weird thing with the leader. He doubled the line on the leader and tied a certain knot where he had a double line. So you had 20-pound leader, but it was actually two 10-pound lines woven together. And uh, I caught that first fish, and, man, I was just hooked on it. And mm-hmm. uh, from then on, you know, every time that I'd go with my dad and Ned, we'd, we'd try to find those guys so I could fish with them. And then after a while, they'd invite me to go with them. You know, my mother would drop me off at their house, and I would go out with them and, and sight cast these big trout. And, 
you talk about addicting, man. You walk down these shorelines and start seeing these big trout. You know, popping cork shrimp is not going to do it, you know. And, uh, mm-hmm. of course, then many years later, I, I just, my wife and I got a boat, a little 14, 15-foot skiff, and we'd run down to bathroom in that skiff and fish all day, fish all night, you know, and just absolutely addicted to the fishing. And, mm-hmm. uh, and not only the fishing, though, Chris, it was the amount of big fish we had in this bay system mm-hmm. was just unbelievable. You know, that was a certain window in my life. Then after all the netters were taken out, we started really getting a lot of big fish and there mm-hmm. wasn't a lot of pressure yet. So I had that sweet time in my life where none of the guys had showed up yet. There was two guys in this whole bay, Doug Bird and I, and Doug Bird didn't share a whole <laughs> lot with me. You know, he was, uh, he was like, he was in the secret service, man. Sure. He's just, he'd come in, he cut every lure off his line and tied on the pole. He would never give me a break. You know, he'd never show me nothing, you know? So I learned it on my own. I can honestly say I, I stumbled over every rock and bath and fell down on top of, you know, cut my elbows until I learned to bay and, and learned how to fish. So, uh, that was pretty unique coming in here and, and doing it that way then and trying to stay motivated now it's where i am 40 years later at uh, the amount of pressure and, and you know a lot not as many fish but it's the love is still there the passion like jay says so many people don't understand when you have a passion for something well i could never not fish i don't care if there's one left chris i'm yeah, going yeah. <laughs> you know? well we were texting um back and forth trying to set up a time and we're shooting for last weekend and i think you're out of town right and then you shoot <laughs> you shoot me a picture and you're on the beach with a oh it was a monster that was, was a big big fish yeah. uh top water right Heading right that was uh, last week i caught 20 big fish in the surf but and that's what i'm you know the bay gets so crowded on the weekends and friday i just stay away and i got 60 miles of beautiful beach and some really good fish on the beach i caught a 30 and a half last year on the beach you know that weighed eight and a half and mm. this fish was probably 29 inches really good fish but catch a lot of those 27 inch fish in the surf and they fight like crazy you just don't have the boats running over and stuff now and uh yeah. you know what what i do now is uh i i don't keep any trout now you know chris i just mm-hmm. after this freeze man we're just we're letting them go yeah. and i've lost some business i've lost some people that you know, come down that are still, I've had them for 30, 40 years and still want to keep some fish. And I say, man, this, I just can't do it right now after this freeze. I just, every fish I let go releases some eggs and I feel like I've done something. I just, uh, I've taken so many out over the years and maybe this is my little part this spring to, to kind of back off them a little bit. And uh, we're going to chase redfish and we're going to let the trout go this year. Yeah. It, and that's been our intent with the release 2021 Texas. Uh, we, sp- we started kind of like a little, um, yeah, more or less like a little movement. And it's encouraging anglers, it yeah, across the coast to just release the release the fish for the rest of this year, right. for no other reason than letting that fish and letting that population that survived the freeze contribute back to a fishery. That's and that, right. and look, that I know it's a short-term sacrifice for hopefully a long-term gain. That's the intent, right? Is to get that contribution back into a fishery, and then ultimately year after year after year, if we have that kind of and develop that mentality of just taking what you need, release the rest, be responsible stewards of a resource. We can see the fishery get back to the exactly stories right. that hopefully you tell me uh, that's right, today Chris, and people you know? listen, right? And, you know, it's so important. We uh, Even before these freezes, you know, Rousey and, and, and several of us, uh, we all have a little deal in our boat. If you're going to keep a trout, it's got to be under 20 inches. You know, mm-hmm. we uh, once a trout gets over 20 inches, he's reached an age where he's past the predator age. He's not being eaten by birds. He's not being targeted by a lot of predators. So now he's a producer. He is producing our our eggs and our stuff so he's really important in our system you know you take a 23 25 inch trout they produce a lot of little babies a lot of little trout so they're very important to us and really you know if you if you fish enough you're going to catch enough fish under 20 inches if you want to keep a couple to eat that's okay but you take a year after a freeze the, the 10 the 10 fish you did just say you didn't keep the 10 that you were going to keep this year you put those 10 fish back how many fish did they make for two years down the line that you you release those fish to help someone else. You did something for someone else. You don't realize, but you did something for the base system. And, you know, I'm tickled to death this freeze wasn't as bad as 89. In 89, let me tell you what, man, it was tough. I have to actually move up toward Port Aransas and that mm-hmm. area there to get any kind of bite at all. There was not not hardly any fish in our system. And now, I'm, you know, I went out uh, two weekends ago or two weeks on a Wednesday and, and caught 50 speckled trout on a point. You know, released them all. Sure. Bent the, we bend the barbs down on our lead heads now, especially in the little fish. And that's another thing that Doug Pike, you know, I, I love Doug and I fished with him a lot. And he taught me a long time ago, you know, when you're in those smaller fish, you know, you have a certain a certain box of lead heads, the, the barbs are crimped down. It makes so much different. You're not injuring the fish. And also, is you can drop your rod tip and let them shake off without putting your hand yeah. on them and knocking the slime off. And you've already caught the fish. It's fun. You, you set the hook. You got the thump. You know, you, 
just it's over. You know, go ahead and let him shake off. You don't need to sling him up against your chest, throw him in a hot boat. You know, I see people that they throw these little fish in a boat and, you know, on the bottom of the boat, then take them off. No, no, no. <laughs> That's just the worst thing you yeah. can do in the summer. But just, you know, I've, I've, you know, I've come from – I've come from killing everything that I caught <laughs> to trying to release everything. Yeah. I've come a full circle in, in my beliefs. You know, at, at the time, there was only two two uh, guides in the whole bay, Doug and I. You know, I thought there was no end to this, these mm-hmm. big trout. I thought, we just keep all the big trout that you want. And then here comes a freeze in, in 83. Oh, my God. I could not believe the amount of big fish that it killed. Mm-hmm. And, and my business, you know, it, it was hard after after 83. It was really hard. And then... You know, the, here we go back again in '89, and uh, but what it does, Chris, it it really strengthens our our brood. It's mm-hmm. just it makes the fish bigger. Like I say, '93, '94, '95, '96 was unbelievable amount of giant fish from that freeze. Yeah, you know, so they do come back. The the way I see it, and I, I talked about it, and I think the last podcast that I did, which was a while ago now, but I, I really kind of equate it to, and the analogy I would use is almost like pruning down like your trees or your bushes right exactly and and what happens is it's actually a healthier plant exactly uh, in the long run right i mean exactly. it, it requires that so mother nature has a way of pruning kind of her you know her her bounty and now those that have survived it it really flourishes and if you let it flourish right and that the analogy i use there is that hey mother nature kind of she trimmed back if you will her right. bounty but she didn't cut it to the stub That's it's that. up to exactly us right to not cut it down that's, to the stud. That's it. That's it. And, the, you know, the amount of pressure that I see on the bays is, is pretty unbelievable compared to what it used to be. Um, you know, and, and, and I'm so glad there's people like you, Chris, and Jay Watkins mm-hmm. and Lowell Odom, and these guys that, that really have a passion for keeping these fish here because, you know, trout are trout are great, but a trout over five pounds is a special fish. It's, yes, sir. It's, uh, it's different. It's uh you know, you can catch, I, I, redfish are great. They saved my bacon many days, but a redfish is a redfish. I'm sorry, man. It's not a trout. I'm sorry. I'm just, I don't mean to say nothing about, about redfish, but, you know, I'm a trout fisherman, you know, and I catch a redfish, that's great. But basically, I love to target the big trout. You know, that's that's kind of what we did. And and that's the thing about what's so different here than other areas is all these old timers, McElroy and, and Chatter Allen and Dick McCracken, it was all about the length of the trout. It was never mm-hmm. mentioned the weight. And that was the reason they did that is because they could trophy fish all year long. Yeah. They would trophy fish all year long for the length. The, the winner of the year had the longest length. Yes, sir. You know, it's not about not the, the weight. weight. Yeah, which we know yeah. varies season to season. <laughs> and right? some of those pigs that Chatter caught, he caught that one that was 13-something gut and gill when he brought it back to the dock. Oh I mean, come God. on, man. Yeah. <laughs> 35 so, inches long. So you were telling me uh, pre-show that, you know, we were talking about dirty 30 and stuff like that. And you said in your time... It wasn't 30. It was 32. 32. Yeah, it was just, no, 30s were just, yeah, 30s, okay. <laughs> like Pope and Young, mentionable. You know, but it wasn't a 32. 32 was that mark where it could have been a 10-pounder, you know. Yeah. And uh, all we had were those little D-liar scales, the little bitty black scales. You know, we didn't mess with those things. It's all about length and girth. You know, Doug Pike caught a fish with me. I'll never forget. You know, we are in a school of fish, and uh, this was in, uh, I think, 94 or 95. And uh, there were so many fish, I could not get anybody to come fish me in the winter. No one would come. I'd get them to duck up, but no one would bring, bring a rod and reel down. I had the whole bay to myself. Doug Bird didn't white fish. Bill Sheikah was deer hunting in Mexico. He mm-hmm. just spent the whole winter January down in Mexico. So pretty much that bay was myself, but I couldn't get anybody to fish. I, wasn't making, I was catching fish, but I wasn't making a living, you know? Yeah. And so I, I invited Doug to came, come down. And uh, it was so many fish in there, Chris, that uh, it was slick, calm. I on the trolling motor it'd be 30 wakes in front of me a big trout i try to pick out the biggest wake to throw at oh my god and uh we we're throwing jumping minnows topwaters mm-hmm. and uh, that's when i caught the stringer here and uh doug caught a fish that uh was 32 and a half inches with had a 19 inch girth oh my lord on the on jumping minnow and oh released my. it that's 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 what kind of fisherman doug is yeah. he released it and we released those fish that day and we go back and we look at that and go and doug looked at me and goes you think i'll catch a bigger one today and i go i don't know Doug. that's a pretty big fish right there but that's how cocky we were yeah. you know there was so many big fish then sure. you know i catch 10 fish in a row that's on my my so, wall here that's pretty amazing to yeah. catch not missed you know 10 casts and 10 fish and so, one of number seven got off about halfway the boat and i twitched it, another fish jumped on it but i actually caught him in 10 casts but so so Folks aren't here, right? And we have a lot of listenership from across uh, state lines up in the Northeast, right. Virginia, North Carolina, uh, Florida, obviously along the Gulf Coast. And they're not sitting in this in this house. And they didn't see what I see and what you see every single day. And that is 
the the stringer that you're referring to on your wall. And so tell us that story, uh, kind of run us through the day if you can. And then, yeah, give us some nuances of kind of how you remember it. Well, you know, it was just, I was on these fish for a couple of years and this was the early nineties. And, uh, so there was these giant schools of fish there were three to 500 giant big black balls. And the way I learned about these big schools of fish at Muckaroy and, and McCracken all had a $5 pass you could buy from the King Ranch that allowed you to drive down the shoreline of the King Ranch and fish. And they all had headache racks on their trucks. And we'd, get, we'd take our shoes off and stick our toes in that headache rack and, and put our hands on top of the hood and roll down that King Ranch shoreline until we saw these big black wads of trout. Mm-hmm. And they looked like pogies doing the water now, but they were giant big wads of trout. And we'd pull up about 100 yards in front of them and get out and just wear them out. Big giant schools of big trout. I mean big trout. And then they were usually a, a mid-morning. And then after they would spread out, we would get the singles up on the sand. But I pulled into this place, and I'd seen this school several times, and I'd call Doug. I said, you know, yesterday, Doug, it was just unbelievable i cannot tell you how many big fish i caught and how many i released you got to come you know and uh and so he, he could he didn't come that morning and so about two o'clock or about no about noon i called him i said doug you got to get down here he says ah oh, man he says i got to work and i says quit your job i said you can always get enough you can always get a job dude but you can never catch trout like this and so he rose up at burline about three o'clock that afternoon mist and rain nasty you know and i'm just i'm catching fish like you what time of year was this? It was February. February, okay. Yeah, February. And, of course, then, um, I picked Doug up, and he just – I turned that corner, and I dropped that tullamore down. I turned it on, and his wake's as far as you could see across that bay. And he goes, are those redfish? I go, are you kidding? Those are not redfish. A trout pumps his tail one time, he glides. A redfish, boom, 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 boom. He pumps several times, and it's, it's a jerky motion. A big trout pumps his tail one time, he glides 10 feet. Those are trout. And that's the way you can tell a wake from a trout from redfish is the way they move. I pull in there, it's like one pump, everything glides. I said, man, these are some toads in here. We never got out of the boat. I t- turned the boat sideways to the trolling water. Oh Every God. cast would jump them in there. They're jumping over it. They're knocking it out of the water. They're slapping it with their tail. One would grab it. Another one grab it out of his mouth. Oh my you know, God. just yeah. it's just like unbelievable. Yeah. You know, trout puke all over the boat. Smell <laughs> like, you know, I just you're just in heaven when you got those you know, sour trout smell all around you. You know, it's all over your clothes. I was in heaven, man. Yeah. You know, just unbelievable. And, and the fog rolls in. It's just foggy like you wouldn't believe. You know, and Doug goes, we got to get out of here. We got to get out of here, you know. I says, one more, Doug. Boom, boom, boom. We catch another big old toad, you know. And I mean, it's so foggy now, we can't see the bank. No no compass. All it has is a compass. No GPS or nothing. Yeah. I turned that thing through the Ross. I go, okay, got to run 20 seconds at 4,000 RPMs, turn right to get out of here. So that's what I did. You know, that's how yeah, we did. Yeah, you know, yeah, stuff yeah. like that. We get to turn down the King Ranch shoreline. There's these, there's these big rocks, rocks on the shoreline. Yeah. I go, well, I know there's some, there, I looked at this cat. There's some, you know, we'd go around the rocks and somehow we made it home, you know. And I'll never forget that, how we would just, you know, fly by the seat of our pants in that fog. You know, it's just yeah. crazy. Because one thing is, there's nobody else out there. You know, so the chance you hit another boat was just almost nothing, right? You know, but to r- hit a rock, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I went right by where I go, oh, I'm sure <laughs> glad they didn't see that. You know? yeah. <laughs> you know, but. But, all right, so 10 trout. Yeah. Um, walk us through, if you can, uh, one of, or I guess maybe all 10 or, or ones that kind of stick out. Oh, yeah, out to just, you. To, you know, the first, the really first, really big one was that, that 12 pounder that uh, Pike caught on jumping middle. Just, just annihilated it. Just boom, blew it up, you know, and it's smoking dread. These fish. The people don't realize these big fish will almost spool you. You know, a 30-inch fish will yeah. close, but 32, 33, they'll almost spool you, you know, especially with 12-pound yes, mono, and, uh, you you know, you hope you can get get him stopped. And they'd finally stop, and I'd gun the Tullamore to water him, try to get some line back up. We got these fish in, and we'd net them and take a picture and let them go. You know, so, let them go, let them go, let them go. You know, then uh, we get to the kind of the, up against the bank, and I'd pin this big school up against the bank. There were so many big fish. They were blowing mull up, and the mullet would leave like – There'd be like a little slick on top of the mo- on top of the water with some scales, a little blood in it, where they just mm. smoked a big old mullet. You know, it's mm-hmm. just so exciting to see that. You know, yeah. and uh, so I, I eased up in there, you know, and there's no power poles at this time or anything. The wind was real light. I turned the boat sideways and I started firing in there, and four or five wakes would come at my jumping minnow every time I threw it. I stop it, and they blow it out of the water. But the, they were so big, they were pushing so much water with their nose, they throw it up oh, in the yeah. air. When it hit the when it hit the water, Chris, another would grab <laughs> it. Boom. Then if they had it by the tail hook, another one grabbed by the head and rip it out of his mouth. It was just the most incredible free-for-all yeah. trout, just incredible. And Doug Knight, we went home, you know, he went home and called me the next day and says, you know, I'm trying to write this story, Cliff. I, I, I'm still just in shock. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, that was just, and it, it, I did that until 
Wallace, Jim Wallace read that article and he says, he called me and says, you know, I've, I've never fished the North shore of Bath and I've always fished the summer and in the springtime on the, on the uh, South shore. He says, I want to fish that uh, North shore with you. So, uh, Wallace came down and, uh, at that time, this, this stringer was ready at, uh, John Glenn's taxidermist and he did all skin mounts for me. He never charged me nothing because I took over 100 skin mounts to, for customers that year to the taxidermist. And so it was a free mount and I, I wanted to get a stringer mount and especially when I caught them all at one time and, mm-hmm. and it would not fit in my Suburban. And so <laughs> Wallace had a pickup and Wallace put that stringer in the back of his pickup and hung it up in my house for me the first time. That's when I That's first crazy. met Jim Wallace and, uh, God, what a great fisherman he was. Yeah. Oh my God, man. Just so before we get into that, so 10 pounds, how big? Uh, the, the stringer's 96 pounds, uh, oh my God. you know, and I did, if I'd have called the fish out that day, the biggest fish I caught, there's no telling what it would have weighed or that if I'd have kept them for those two days, oh my God, Chris, the amount yeah. of 32s I had, oh God, oh my, the big fish, just incredible. <laughs> they were pulling the backs off the, off the broken backs. They'd pull the joint off yeah, the broken yeah, yeah. back. They were that big. I carried a box of hooks on the dash, constantly changing out hooks. They were ripping them, stripping them out, pulling the sprint rings off. You know, just a different class of fish. These were absolutely steroid-eating yellow mouth. They were just amazing. They were just amazing. So, time frame. So, when was this? What, what year? Well, you know, it, it went on through the 80s, you okay. know, first. But the really smoking time, I think, in my career was that 87, 88, 89. Then that 91, 92, 93, 94, post 95, freeze. 96, that post. But that 94 to 96, the amount of 30-inch fish. And Doug Pike did an article on this. It's, it's, it's in writing, and uh, he went to the taxidermist, John Glenn, and says, how many fish do you get in this year, 30-inch fish? Mm-hmm. And the number is unbelievable, but yeah. it's in writing. And I took over 130-inch fish that year to the taxidermist for my clients, and that was good a big gosh. deal as a, a 30-inch fish. It was so good that uh, one of my clients, Eddie Aguilar, which is has a big oil field man, he had three sons, and uh, this is in February. And uh, we went down to Bathin, and we did not leave till everybody had a 30-inch fish. He had a 30-inch fish, and every one of his sons had a 30-inch fish. You can't do that in a year now, Chris. No, I agree. I mean, it's 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and one of his sons hadn't caught a 30-inch. He caught a 28. And he says, we're going to stay till you catch a 30-inch. We're slow rolling silver broken backs with black backs, and they're just pouncing, just piling on them. You know? mm. He got the 30-inch at 4.30. We went home. Everybody got a 30-inch. Yeah. You know, and, and that's just people don't realize what this bay was like and what it has the potential. And another thing that changes water quality, so – Back in the day, I could see every rock in Rivera Channel. Mm-hmm. I could see the bottom in Rivera Channel. Crystal, crystal clear. It's never been that since. And I think that's a lot to do with the agricultural movement on the ranch and, and all the other stuff going on. But that water was absolutely gin clear. You know, mm-hmm. it's all just super clear. Yeah. Just amazing. So this is the aquacu- or the agriculture back there in like the Rivera. Yeah, Laguna I think that's Salada, what happened. Coyote. Some of that, you know, the runoffs and stuff finally murkied up the water a little bit. There was a time where... You could run down Rivera Channel and see the post at the bottom and see everything in the Rivera Channel. You know, Unreal. everything in every rock, like Razor Rock in the middle of the bay. We would we see these big black circles around these rocks that'd be trout, just mm-hmm. circling around the rock. And they'd always be on the sand side. So the southeast side would pile up with dead grass. They'd be around the other side where the sand is. You mm-hmm. see like a half a moon of big trout around these rocks. And you talk about a no-brainer. See, if there's any fish here, let me see if I see them. Oh, yeah, they're here. <laughs> that's crazy it was pretty easy Chris. so so talking with uh about jim wallace right so we um had heard obviously i've heard a lot about him i actually spoke to paul brown actually on on one of the podcasts and i actually asked him i said you know how did you hear about you know him breaking a state record and kind of tell us that story and so he kind of shared the same sentiment you did which is man that guy he was serious he was he was a hell of a fisherman so tell us a little bit about jim i love jimmy uh you know, and we were very, I was young and very competitive and, uh, you know, the, we, we were, I kind of had a love hate relation toward the end because, you know, I taught him all the really sweet spots and, uh, you know, fishing 24 hours in those spots and you're catching a lot of big fish. You know, mm-hmm. it was it, more of a jealousy thing. He was at one time, he's probably catching more big fish than I was at a certain stretch, you know, simply because he was staying on it 24 hours a day, but he was a very good fisherman, a very knowledgeable fisherman. I remember him coming to my house and had a whole duffel bag full of corkies and dumped them out of my table and says, help yourself. You know, let me have all the corkies. He's a very generous man. And uh, the first time I met uh, Paul Brown was with him two or three years earlier, and they were at Bird Island. And uh, they showed me one of the corkies. It was all mangled up. And uh, that was my first introduction to corkies probably 30, 35 years ago. And, man, once I got on them, I just uh, I could not get off mm-hmm. of them. Corky uh, – you know, the, the thing that uh, Wallace, I really picked up from Wallace is not all corkies at that time were equal. 
all the corkies came out of the mold different mm -hmm. and they had different actions and different you know different sink rates and stuff like that our salinity level was so high in the bay our corkies sunk a lot slower than it did in other bay systems mm -hmm. and you'd have some sets of cork uh, some sets of the the corkies that had a lot of air bubbles in them they sunk real slow and then some that didn't have any sunk real fast so you you kind of learn to have a quiver of what your the depth you're fishing in that day and wallace was a master of that uh and he tied direct to 15 big game you know mm -hmm. we all did we all threw 15 15 big game at that time tied direct we didn't use any leaders no leaders and the amount of fish we lost was <laughs> unbelievable <laughs> <laughs> what was i thinking why didn't i put a 20 pound leader on there you know but yeah. we were so cocky and there were so many big fish you know and it was just crazy. With the broken back, you had a better chance because most of the fish would be on the, the metal. You know, most mm -hmm. of his teeth would be on the metal. But when you started thumping them on the corkies, a lot of the corkies would be down. Those front teeth would yeah. get them, you know. And and taco and stuff I like lost that. A, yeah. I lost one. At, at, it was on a salmon corky. A paw built me a salmon gold flash, a salmon color, not pink, but salmon with gold flake. I was killing the big fish on it, man. And I'd, I'd already caught one about 12 on it. And I'd, I threw it out there, and I thumped this fish, Chris. And man, it spooled me, spooled me, spooled me. And I ran, ran, ran. I got it, got her up, got her up, got her up. And I finally saw this fish. This fish is 36 inches long. Oh my God. And the salmon corky is in the side of her mouth. And I said, I got you, baby. I got you. And I see the front hook in there. I see the back hook in there. And she's circling me. I'm trying to get her by the tail. I'm trying to get a hold of her any way I can, you know. And she's circling yeah. me. And I'm, I'm just, my heart's beating 90 miles an hour. And she did this right in front of me this jump and the split ring came off the front hook it pulled in no. two off the front hook and that fish came off and my wife says i pouted for six months <laughs> <laughs> it was just unbelievable the amount of fish that i saw oh you know gosh. then and i know it was 36 inches because bucky vanoy had caught a 36 inch trout in a net a gill net my dad had confiscated it and they froze in a 300 pound block of ice at bucky's fish house mm -hmm. and people come from miles around to see that 36 inch fish frozen that 300 pound block of ice it was pretty phenomenal looking yeah, you know sure. so i knew what one looked like and i'd caught a lot of big fish but that was a 36 inch fish i've seen a couple of those at 36 inch fish they're there but yeah. they at least they were there before you know but i've seen those fish you know so um i haven't actually shared this believe it or not but it, to your point um, I've never shared this before, so actually uh, fishing the Baffin Complex. And uh, I just so happened to kind of uh, go up on a bank, just taking a breather, and uh, I smelled something. And this is actually right before the Biloxi Boat Show in 2018, maybe. And so I get up on the bank, and I smell something, kind of smells like something's dead. You know, I'm like, oh, right. do. So as I'm kind of walking, just kind of, you know, stretching out and kind of just taking a breather, um, that smell is kind of getting a little bit stronger and I'm like, okay, let me just see what it is. Probably like, you know, a dead drum or something like that. And so I walk up and sure enough, it's actually a skull and a spine with the tail intact, no flesh. Uh, you can see that there was some flesh, right. obviously recent, it still smelled. Um, and so when I turned over the skull, I remember going back and looking at, you know, McBride's article, you know, Beast of Legend and looking at the skull structure that right. with some of those fish. And as I took a picture, that picture matched that. And then so what I did is I laid basically my measuring tape over the top of the skull from the tip of the nose. It was fully intact. It, the, the spine wasn't broken or anything like that. And I, I went from the tip of the nose all the way to where the tail is. Obviously, it was it was still there. Didn't see any spots or anything like that. And it was 36 inches. Yeah. So yeah. They're, they're there. Yeah. Which you know. is, which is crazy to think that, you know, obviously you've seen them in your time. I never in my wildest dreams would have ever thought that I'd see a, a, a dead 36 inch fish. And I shared that with McBride and we talked a little bit about it, those beasts of legend and kind of like, what do these fish do nowadays? You know, they change their behavior, stuff like that. This season, we'd like to recognize one of our newest sponsors and that is Down South Lures. From their regular 4-inch Southern Shad to the 5-inch Supermodel and versatile 3-inch Burner Shads, it's easy to see why these baits have become a go-to for many Texas anglers. Designed with their unique hybrid tail, its natural swims-in-the-fall action produces big trout not only here in the Texas coast, but across all estuaries. Aside from that though, they're made right here in the USA. So be sure to support this Texas brand that supports you in pursuit of that next big bite. Real Sportswear humbly started making shirts for a few local fishermen. Rooted in simplicity and utility, Real's minimalist approach is a reflection of what binds the fishing industry together. 
Now found throughout many coastal retailers, their lineup of comfortable and functional gear aims to make your time in the water a success. So next time you're gearing up, wear what guides wear and consider real sportswear. Mirror Lure is an iconic inshore fishing lure company found in every angler's arsenal. From their legendary lineup of lures such as the Top Dog and Catch 2000 to their versatile soft plastics like the Little John and Marshmallow, these lures not only catch fish, but have produced for decades. So whether it's a 17MR or a Paul Brown Cerise Fat Boy, always remember to tie on a mirror lure and turn on the bike. Texas Custom Lures and the original Custom Corky have been podcast sponsors for the first two seasons and we're incredibly appreciative. This Texas brand with inputs from the most respectable guides across the Texas coast complete every big trout angler's arsenal. With great fish catching colors, my personal favorites, Texas Turnip, Bay Mistress, Plum Nasty, to name a few, it's easy to see how these things produce time and time again. So next time you're targeting that next big bite, I highly encourage you to fish the original custom Corky. And remember, the big girls aren't colorblind. You've seen obviously a ton of fish and and I'm not doubting that in any way, shape or form because in that glass case right there on your coffee table, you got uh, two fish. I'd love you to share that story because that was was actually pretty amazing. That was incredible. My my personal best that I actually landed, you know, was was one ounce under thirteen. It was twelve fifteen, and uh, this I was fishing with one guy, and we were in bathing, and uh, we were fishing a big flat with a bunch of big rocks on it, and uh, real heavy structure. And it's about nine or ten o'clock. We're, we're trying to side cast fish. I'm just standing there real, real still. And my guy's a hundred yards away, and I see him crouch down a little bit, walk forward, and he hooks a fish, blows up, big fish, you know, twenty nine inch fish, eight and a half pounds, beautiful fish, and. I go over there to, to help him, you know, with it and all that and talk to him, pat him on the back and all that. We're high-fiving each other, you know, and I had one of these old cable uh, stringers that had the old hook on it. To, mm-hmm. In fact, Chatter made it for me. Chatter Allen made it out of an air, uh, airplane cable, a steering cable out of an airplane. And uh, so he gave it to me. So I was real fond of it. So I put his fish on my stringer and I put it on my belt, 29-inch fish. So congratulations, man. We'll take it to John Glenn and get it mounted. And so he walks off another five or 600 yards way down the deal. And I'm kind of still in this little area where I've been seeing these big fish and I walk up about 100 yards, and there is this toad laying there in the sand. She's looking right at me, Chris. I cannot do nothing. And I'm I'm real good about wearing all blue. I don't wear any white. I just really still. I don't move. I don't slosh. I just stand there. She finally, out there about 20 minutes, she just sat there. She finally turns where she's not looking at me, and she's easing off toward this rock. And I go, man, I'm going to make a shot at her. And I, I'm throwing a plum chartreuse bass sassa with a 116-pound head. And I put it right about six inches from her left eye. i never forget that. It hit the sand and made a little puff of sand. I twitched it one time. And when she turned on it, Chris, I could just see the puff of sand come out of her gill. She just yeah. inhaled it, man. And I waited a second. I inhaled. I stuck her good, man. She did not like it. <laughs> and that fish took off, man, like a scalded dog. And it started heading toward these outside rocks. I knew what she was going to do. She's going to cut me off in these rocks, you know. So I bared down on it. I dropped my rod to the side. I just cranked down on it. With mono, how much pressure can you put with 12-pound yeah. mono, you know? So I'm putting, what I think I'm putting some heat on her. I'm putting some heat on her, you know, with my big old uh, all-star rod, you know? Big old buggy whip, you know? And she jumps out of the water, and I see this fish go, oh, my God, that's a pig. And she runs over the top of that rock, had about a foot of water on top of that rock. And then she just starts fraying my line. I could feel my line going across that rock. I said, yeah. well, if I don't get to her, it's game over. Right. And so I just start charging the water over the top of the waders and everything. I start going after her, man. I'm going. I'm going. I'm chin deep. I'm swimming. I don't care if I drown. I'm getting this fish. And I climb up on top of this rock. I still got this guy stringing around my waist, you know. And, and now we're going in circles around this rock. She's trying to go in circles. And I back my dragway off because now my line is so frayed, I can't put any pressure on She's going to pop me off. You know, it's like 10 foot above the hook. It's just like spider web, just frayed yeah. in that rock, you know. So. I'm backing off. I'm going, I don't care how long it takes. I'm not going to put any pressure on. She jumps again. Oh, my God. You know, and all of a sudden, my, my feet are being tangled up by this stringer that's around my, my, my leg. So I unhook it, and I, these rocks are porous. They have holes like a sponge. So I kind of squash, you know, crouch yeah. down, kind of stick it in the rock there. I think it's going to stay there, you know. And I finally get this fish up the rock. I don't have a stringer, no, a bogey rip. I don't have a net. I don't have nothing, you know. And so my big trick on these big fish, I'll, I'll stroke them one time, get them used to it. Second time I grab them, I grab my tail and I flip them over real fast and disorient them and reach my other hand around their, their head. Mm-hmm. I could not get my hand around this fish's head. There's no way. Well, looking at it. You can see. Why yeah. I can't get my hand around this fish's head. <laughs> and so I didn't want to let her go, so I raised her tail out of the water, and I came in through her mouth, and she bit me. 
she bit me really good. Like noodling, yeah. Yeah, and then I went ahead and got a finger in that gill, and I pushed her up against my chest, and I got I got her hands and my hands and her gills, and and then I look up and that stringer's gone. <laughs> my customer's trophy fishing. I go, I am so toast. I guess I might have to give him this one. I'm thinking, no, no, I'm not. No, it's anyway. So I look up and the, and the bubble's moving where the fish is still on the stringer. So I swim back. I swim that rock. I swim back with this fish, rod in my mouth. I get in the boat. I throw the fish in the boat. I get on the trolling motor, go over there, and that fish is on that hook. Yeah. It stayed on that hook. Yeah. So I got his fish, <laughs> put it in the box, and go pick him up, you know. But uh, what did he say? It was so funny because his fish is in there, and I put my fish in the other box. You know, and he goes, "God, that's a big fish, man! Look at that toad! Look at that, that yeah. big fish!" I didn't say nothing. All he says, "You sure got a big grin on your face?" And he opens up that box. He goes, "Oh my God!" <laughs> you know, he saw that fish. <laughs> you know, I'm just—I mean, I'm just ecstatic catching a fish like that. You know, to catch a fish that big. You know, and just—and uh, then of course, then I take it to to Royce and. Uh, you know, Rocky's a certified weigher. I want to get a certified scale on. I want to slate in the afternoon. Rocky's gone. He, he can't get it weighed. Loopy's there. She says, come back first thing in the morning, you know. So we waited on Bo. Come back in, in the next morning. It's one ounce on the 13. I said, oh man, if I'd have weighed that fish when I caught it, it was probably close to 13 pounds. It was 19-inch mm-hmm. girth, just a big old pig. And the cool thing I want to show you on that fish is bottom jaw split in half. Where at one time in his life, he was hooked on a trot line hmm. and ripped his whole jaw half in two, and it healed back up. You know, and I caught that fish, but that's yeah. a real unique fish because these these commercial guys would take these uh, trot lines and uh, they'd stick them in a in a cane pole and and put the line just out of water with a piece of survey orange survey tape on it with a circle hook, and the trout would slap at it and they'd have them hooked in there about two inches underwater and they'd yeah. run those lines, but and they would leave them. They'd think the game worms gonna come after them, so they'd leave them in the water and they catch fish for weeks mm-hmm. with that stuff on there, killing them. You know, so my dad hated that. People that abandoned their lines, yeah. you know, he just couldn't stand that. Paul told me, uh, Mr. Mr. Paul Brown, he told me uh, down in Lola Laguna Madre, one of the things that they used to bait some of those trot line hooks uh, was oleander leaves. Oleander leaves, cram apples. Now the, now the big thing are they take a, a four-inch dowel rod, like a wooden rod, mm-hmm. and they drill yes. a hole in it, soak it in knee soil, put the hook in there, and the, I've heard the, that. the wood floats off the bottom like a crab. But uh, there were so many trot lines on the King Ranch shoreline when I first started guiding, before I started guiding a kid. That there was only little runways you could go through them. They had white flags on them, just solid trot lines with surveyor tapes, all full of big trout. Mm-hmm. And uh, my dad got the first airboat down here, and uh, he never ran an airboat. And so he had this uh, boatmate named Herndon, and uh, Herndon and him go out in this airboat, and they put it on the Laguna Shores there. And he's never driven an airboat. He runs out around those trot lines. He's knocking those trot lines down one after another. You know, just hitting them, trying to go between them, knocking them down and stuff. And he comes back to the dock and. How'd you do there, Carl? And he said, oh, I did real good. And the, the boatmate said, yeah, he knocked down every trot line he tried to. He was trying to go between them, but he's knocking down all those trot lines with that airboat. But, you know, it's amazing. And, and the nets he picked up was unbelievable, Chris. He would pick those nets up and, and pile them up on the King Ranch shoreline and mm-hmm. burn them in front of those commercial fishermen. They hated it. And uh, the first set of barbells I made was from the, the waiter's net, the, 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 the lead line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, they were just these big little circle lead all over the bank and, the King Ranch didn't want my dad to leave them there, so we pick them up and put them in five-gallon buckets. My dad took them home and melted them down. The lead made me a pair of barbells out of them no with, with Folger coffee cans. That was my first set of barbells was out of commercial net <laughs> net weights. You, you still know? have those? And I wish I did, man. <laughs> I was, you know, <laughs> but yeah, it was so cool. We'd take an ice pick and uh, they started one end of those nets and take an ice pick and they'd run around the fish's gills and that ice that uh, ice pick would release that net around the gills and we'd throw all the big ones alive. Back in the water, and the dead ones, they just pile up, leave them in the net, and then they go to the boat barn and release, you know, get all those fish out of the net. But it was amazing to see when that hook, by dragging behind that game warden, you know, right in the middle of Rivera Channel, too. I mean, you couldn't believe how deep those nets were in the winter mm-hmm. sometimes. You know, they didn't, they didn't set a lot of them shallow. They set them out where they're on the shelves and stuff, and they'd hook them with that, that hook behind that boat and pull them up, Chris, and all these big fish would come to the surface on that net. It was just unbelievable, all the size of those trout. I'd never mm-hmm. forget the size of those trout and the size of their spots. Spots like dimes. Mm-hmm. That's the one thing that you just don't see anymore is the giant spots on these big trout. You know, there's, it seems like there's less spots. They're more faded. Things have changed. I look at my old mouths, how big, and maybe it's something to do with the really crystal clear water we had. Maybe that was it, you know. Yeah. But the, the body, everything has kind of changed a little bit on the shape of the fish and stuff in our system, hmm. you know. I never thought of that. Yeah. And it yeah. could be because the salinity levels have changed, the, the clarity of the water has changed. Something's changed because they look a little different, you know. Yeah, and I've always been, I've heard here, and I've seen it actually, you know, fishing all, you know, married to different complexes. But, you know, obviously those fish and their their features change. Um, but one of the things I'd always heard was like baffin trout are kind of black. 
because yeah, of that rock and right. stuff like that. And so that kind of makes sense. Now, the one directly above my head, tell me a little bit about that. Oh, that caught that fish the day that Wallace caught his fish. I was standing probably about 100 yards from him. And <laughs> so that, that morning I had Mr. Yeah, tell, tell us about yeah, that Yeah, those were great mornings. But I had this one guy that I fished with for 20 years, Mr. Jolly, and he fished every once a week, and it was just like religion. We went, but we had to be back at Snoopy's at 11 o'clock to have the first shrimp sandwich. That was his deal. I can't tell you how many 30-inch fish we caught in bath, and at 10 o'clock I pull off. Well, one more, one more big fish, but we go to have lunch at Snoopy's. Yeah. Well, that was his morning, and I knew it was going to be really good. So I went down, and, and I fished out of the boat with him close to Wallace and in a gut. We caught a bunch of big fish, and I ran. I had a leggy bay, which ran 75 miles an hour. So I took Mr. Jolly back. I said, I'm going to have to skip lunch this day, buddy. And I, I went back down there and fished with Wallace till almost dark, and that's when I caught this big fish in the wall that had that, that big girth. But, man, I'll tell you, another good fish that was caught that day was Ed Stedman. Or it was Ed Stedman and Jolie Garland. Ed Stedman there, standing there, Ed Stedman. And uh, I see him hook this big fish on a corky, you know, and it's a monster fish. It's actually a 12-pound fish. And it comes off, he grabs it, and it comes off his hook right on his chest. He bear hugs that fish. Yeah. The corky's swinging around his face. He still got onto <laughs> that fish. He never let it go. He got that fish. He put his thumbs in that fish, but he got that fish. That was so cool looking. Unbelievable. You know? But I kept one fish that day, and I kept that big fish, you know. How, how big was this Yeah, that, that big fish. That fish. That, that fish, I think, was right at 10 and 3 quarters. I say. You know, but I had another really, really monster on that I kind of fumbled that day. I was trying to get the corky out and put him on the string at the same time, and I dropped him. You know, I didn't carry a pair of pliers. I just, mm -hmm. you know, we thought that a pair of pliers was for city slickers. You know, we used a tip for our stringer or something. But, you know, it wasn't until later on we we, did, we would always dig them out with our fingers. It's just crazy how little equipment we had and, and how sorry equipment we had compared to what we have now, Chris. And, you yeah. Know, it's just amazing. I think of some of those fish that I hooked, I could have landed with the equipment I had now. There's no doubt. I think of two fish that I hooked that spooled me that I would have landed if I'd have had the braid and the equipment mm -hmm. I had now. If I had the waterloo rods and stuff I had now and the 13 fishing reels and stuff I have now, oh, my God, I could have caught those fish, man, yeah. you know? So I guess you have to some extent, but I would, I would ask, because there's so many stories, right? I mean, they're just littering your house. They're... And they're amazing. And, and right. I know each one of these fish has has a story, but what, which one is kind of the one that stands out the most? Is obviously the 10-pound string or the 100-pound yeah, well, you know, stringer, or is there another certain fish? There's a, there's a, a lot of really cool things. The one that I, I get tears in my eyes when I think it was, it was the last day that I had, the most incredible day that I had in Bathin before it just went to, you know, just went crazy. So mm -hmm. I'm standing in Bathin. It's uh, 1995. It's uh, 29 degrees. I could not get one of my friends to go fishing with me. No one would go with me. I said, I'm going. I go down to Bath, and I pull them to my favorite spot, and there are big fish everywhere, Chris. It's just mm -hmm. unbelievable. And I had my salmon corky. I still had this before I lost it. You know, to see I still, it. The salmon corky was salmon. Do you still have the, one? Like, oh, I still have one. I still got I, I still got the one that I caught that I lost a really big fish on and that. just chewed to piece. I'll show you. It's a really cool collar. And uh, I sat there in one spot. I got out of the boat, and I waited about 50 yards from the boat, and it's there's three trenches in this flat, and uh, people think that big trout come up on a flat all in different places. They don't. They're like deer. They come up in certain areas they like. It's usually a low area. It's a small trench that, that enters the flat, and they normally come up in that the place they feel safe, where they can come up where they're they're kind of hidden. They're below the bait. They, they're sneaky. They're, they're an ambush fish, mm. you know. And so I'm standing in this trench, and uh, the way I could always tell the fish were coming in that, that trench, the mullet would just start working and flipping in that trench. Here they come. Here they come. Here they come, you know. And I sat there and caught them for three and a half, four hours. Every single cast, it hit the water. I could watch them. The corky would never go under more than six inches. I could barely get the line clicked in and they'd suck it under, yeah. suck it under, suck it under. And my hands were just bleeding from all the fish I'd caught that week. They're so sore I couldn't close my hands. They had cracks all over them. I didn't have a pair of pliers. And I said, man, I got to go. I got to go. And that fish in that case, that last one right there, that big one, that 11 and three-quarter, I threw that salmon corky out there and got a little backlash and it stopped about 10 feet in front of me. Mm -hmm. And I rest down to my loot shoulder and I pull that loop out like that. And I look up and that corky's gone and it's totally slack. The fish has already ran by me. It smoked it and ran <laughs> by me. Yeah. I turned around and set the hook behind me. And that was that big, big fish. And I said, okay, I'm going. I left her on the hook. I grabbed her by the gills. I left the, the corky was way back in her throat. I threw her in there, and that's the last fish I mounted right there. But that was the last time that I walked off from all the big fish I wanted to catch. That was typical bathing. You know, I said, mm -hmm. I wish I'd have known that would have been the last time that mm -hmm. I could walk off 
from ever seeing that again. Now, when a big fish bite, it's over. Like, you get a two-hour window, and boom, 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 you catch them, it's over. The school's moved out. It wasn't all day, daylight to dark, another school, another school, another school. It's not like that now, especially yeah. after the freeze. It's little pods of wolf packs moving around, yep. little pods of fish, you know, and you get them, they move on. And, and that's what you learn about sight casting is, is how much sight casting has changed because I pull up on these same places all these guys were fished in Alizon now with nobody in there, and there'll be pods of six or seven, maybe ten big fish in a pod. And the big one would always be on the outside. He'd always be in, she'd always be in the back. And to try to weed through those 30s to get that 33, 34 and we're sitting there complaining about, oh, yeah, a 30 jumped on. Like, come on, man. We'd give anything to jump on a 30 jump on my thing. That's just incredible what we saw. And to follow those fish around for hours. And, and we, we didn't just wait and look for We found the fish we wanted, and we stalked that fish. Mm-hmm. We'd see a big fish, and we'd walk behind it. We'd stop and try to get it. We'd try to wait till it came to a little a pot of grass, something to stop on. Mm-hmm. And once it found something to stop on, it felt safe where it was not, you know, felt, didn't feel exposed. When they're on that white sand and stuff, they feel exposed, and they don't want to stop moving. Mm-hmm. But once they find a little hump or an uneven bottom or a little thing of grass, they'll pull over there and hang up for a little bit, and that's when you got a shot at them. But you got to be really pay attention. So many people will cast when the fish is looking at them. It's game over. Yeah, You can't do that. You know, the fish has to be looking the right way. You know, and that's the patient thing is, is standing there and waiting for your opportunity, and I do miss that. You know, I still try to do it a lot, but what happens now is there's some burn boat comes by and points to the fish I'm stalking. Oh, yeah, look at that. Well, yeah, that's the one I'm walking after, you know. <laughs> it's just uh, it's real different. You know, the respect is not there anymore. And that's what Jay yeah. and I talked about. There's, there's not a whole lot of respect out there now like it used to, which is the young guys didn't, didn't grow up that way like we did. You know, we yeah. I never came on anybody else fishing. You know, when I saw – uh, Mike out there, you know, Blackwood and all that, you know, we stayed away from each other. I wouldn't, I would never get on his fish. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we fished tide gauge one, one time and, you know, we're 500 yards apart. That's about as close as we get. <laughs> you know, we just didn't, we just didn't, we had so much respect for each other. Say, we just didn't do that. You know, we just, just was unheard of. There's plenty of fish. I'll go find my own fish. You got those fish. You found mm-hmm. them. They're yours. Yeah. You know, so it's just and, changed. And, and, you know, and, and that's, you know, we're talking a little bit about it, you know, just listening to some of these stories, you know, and, and for our followership, you know, that, that listens to us. And I think they have, you know, an active approach in terms of respect, respect for each other, respect for a resource. That's hopefully the the type of folks that we attract in terms of a brand, in terms of kind of a movement, if you will, to kind of just reinstill that respect on the water and respect for a resource. And that that's the intent. And, and we've tried to showcase that where it's, it's not about the, it is about the fish, but it's really not right. I mean, seeing you get tears in your eyes about the last time you yeah. walked off a fish and path yeah. and it, understanding that that's, that's the emotion. That's a deep seated emotion that you have for a fishery and that you only get through an appreciation for a resource after right. doing time, your homework, you know, spending a lot of you, you, all these things. Right. And it, and it's kind of all encompassing and that's the thing that hopefully people kind of see instead of just a, a Facebook post or a, you know yes, what I'm saying? That's it. That's exactly it, right. And that's, that's hopefully what we're trying to get back to is just, man, just showcase it. Yeah. Okay. Take a picture of a really beautiful fish, release that fish, but it's really respect at the end fish. of the day, yeah. at the end of the day though, it's really not about the fish. I can tell you everything about, you know, targeting a big fish or catching a big fish, but really it, it it's about the emotion behind the pursuit when it's all said and done. And, right. and that's what's cool about seeing all these bounce in your house is I know you can probably visualize and as you're telling the stories and for the listeners out there, you're not looking at me. I can visualize you seeing exactly what you yeah, saw that exactly, day. exactly. You know what I'm saying? And it's so it's it's funny how you change so much. Now I have so much passion for these fish. I couldn't, I don't know if I could even kill, if I catch a one bigger than I caught now, I don't know if I could kill it. Yeah. I'll probably take a picture and let it go because you develop such a, a love for these fish. You see what they've been through. Well, you know, our fish now have just really been abused. I hate to say that, but, yeah. you know, everybody targets big trout. There used to not be any trophy trout fishermen. It's all about popping cork shrimp, redfish. It just, yeah. Then the trophy trout came, the trophy trout came thing. You know, and it's just, it's different, Chris. And, you know, like Jay releasing that 11-pounder he caught in Mansfield was so amazing, but he was so emotional about that. Yeah. I talked to him about that. I said, you know, he says, and when he let it go, Cliff, I had a tear in my eye. I says, yeah, I know what you mean, man. I says, I had that feeling when I, <clears throat> I catch a really big fish now. And I, and I look at it, and I say, man, you're in good shape. You're a really big fish. You made it. And uh, I'm going to turn you loose. I, like, like Jay says, you know, he, he made something really, 
and just gets you in the heart. He says, I'll never see you again. Yep. Well, I'll never see that fish again, but that's okay, man. And hopefully she got smart. She'll never yeah, bite yeah. A, another corgi, but that's okay. But, you know, at least I didn't, you know, have, there's no reason for me to mount another fish. I mean, I mounted these fish because in the old days, there was no social media. We took all these skin mounts and stuff to these fishing shows, the George R. R. Brown fishing show. We, we took big coolers of giant fish. We'd lay them out in front of our booths to get trips because we're starving to death down here. All I could do was duck hunt for $50 a morning. I wasn't making any money, you know. Mm. I just, that's all I could do was nobody would fish here in the winter until I started bringing these big fish up to these shows in the winter. Yeah. Started saying, hey, man, the winter is unbelievable here, you know. And then was, what was so great about is learning all that from the Muckaroy and all those guys, and now they're all gone mm-hmm. and left me with their knowledge and their passion for those big fish. They didn't throw it redfish. We walk around redfish. That was make me crazy. There'd be a big old thirty-five inch. You go, don't spook it. She'll blow your trout out here. Be easy. Don't spook her. And we get up on the bank and walk around those little pods of redfish to get back and look. He goes, now you're looking for those big old black logs with like a trot line steak. That's yeah. what you're looking for, boy. And I just love that. You know, I just love his, his enthusiasm. Yeah. And Chatter was so tight, he'd take his tennis shoes off because at Payless there were two for five dollars. <laughs> I'm not. He says, I can't tear up these brand new pair of tennis shoes he'd lay them up on the cabin and he'd go wait barefoot in his underwear half the time you know <laughs> and and i'll never forget the jar of mustard in chatter's cabin so he had this jar of mustard it must have been there for 10 years and he'd go in and he'd crack it open it just like broken like paint dried paint he cracked that mustard up and go you want a sandwich there wet boy and i go no i'm good there chatter you're good he, he smeared this mustard on it you must have an unbelievable immune system because he'd make a bologna sandwich or a spam sandwich with mustard on it and he'd eat it and never get sick. But he taught me something. So the, one of the first times I went fishing with him was, and it comes lunchtime, they're all pulling out their lunch, eating lunch, and nobody offered me nothing, you know, no water, nothing. And I, I was hungry, you know, so I just kind of sat in the boat, sat there, and he uh, chattered and says, boy, if you're going to want it when you get there, bring it with you. He taught me. When you go in the bay and you're hunting and fishing, take what you need for yourself. Mm-hmm. And from then on, I had me a wad of peanut butter and bread or <laughs> yeah. something in there when I went fishing with him and some water because you can only drink so much salt water. You know, yeah. <laughs> and I was just stuff like that. But he was this hardcore sight casting machine. Him and Muckaroy and Dick McCracken and, and Dick McCracken had a little hat on. It was so cool, like a little looked like Gilligan's hat, you know. And he had diaper pins, these big diaper pins on it, and then he would diaper pin these lures on all around his hat and right in the front he had a five dollar bill on this uh diaper pin and this five dollar bill was all faded you know had a hook in it and i said uh, dick what's that five dollar bill for well i tell you what that boy he said uh the day i can't catch lunch with this rod and reel we're gonna take that five dollar bill to whataburger he says you see how it's faded ain't been to whataburger <laughs> <laughs> it was good but he'd awesome. keep one fish every day he'd keep one small trout take it home and cook it but that five dollar bill the day he died that five dollar bill was hanging on his hat at his house and one of my good friends had that hat with those lures and that five dollar bill still on there mccracken yeah. never broke out that five dollar bill because he could walk down that beach and catch his dinner you know, almost every day. He would take me to the north gate of, of, of Naval Air Station, the Corpus Christi Bay mm-hmm. in the winter, and my mother would drop me off, and I'd meet Dick out there, and he'd, she'd drop me off, and, and Oso Pier was there. Jack Maddox ran the pier there, the guy, and that was pretty much my babysitter. When I got through fishing, I walked all the way down to, to the pier, which is about four or five miles, and, and waited at the pier for my mom to pick me up, and uh, we'd go out there with mirror lures and catch those big trout with Dick, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I'd wade out there with the, as cold as it could be, you know, no waders, just blue legs, you know, <laughs> just cold as I could get, you know. And I was going to ask you, I mean, wade, wade fishing in the wintertime when y'all did that, I mean, what was the, oh man, what, what was it like? I oh mean, my God. So, I mean, now you got, you know, beautiful Sims waders, oh, breathables, man, you, you know, got Gore-Tex. That's and, so funny because, you know, the first time that Jay and I, one of the first times Jay and I fished together and he, in fact, he caught his first double digit fish with me and, and, uh, we had the worst equipment, you know, we had those old, uh. Haley Hansen rain jackets and mm-hmm. the real, you know, the, I think we, we had the neoprene waders, you know, with nothing under them and just super, super cold. And the Jay, the day that Jay and I caught those big fish, it was, I think the air temperature was 20, 28 water temperature was 49, 50 degrees. And, uh, we stood in one place for three or four hours and Jay's looking like you're crazy. And I said, no, just stay here. Also, don't, there he is. Yep. You know, that's it, the big fish. You know? And he told that story in the Texas trophy trout for tomorrow that, uh, yeah. Scott Murray in yeah. that book. And, yeah, and, and I was going to ask you about yeah, that, but it was that's so cool, man. Seeing seeing Jay catch his first really big fish, and he, you know, I, he didn't fish corkies, and I got him, you know, I got him fishing corkies, and now he's just taking it to another level. You know, so, I, uh, 
mastered. You know, we, we fished corkies. There was no such thing as a fat boy. Yeah. You know, it was a standard the original, yeah. standard corkies. And uh, it's all about the twitch and showing the eye of the corky. And I tell people, you know, how do you work a corky? It's all about showing the eye to the fish. And it really is. It's about a short little twitch and rolling that bait over and showing the eye to the fish. And that's all it's about. And so many times these corkies would come out of the mold. There'd be an air bubble in one of the tails, so it'd mm-hmm. run to one side. And you couldn't get it to work right. And those corkies would not catch fish like the ones that worked right. You get mm-hmm. one that was tuned. I don't care how many holes it had in it. That's the one you threw. And I'd buy, I'd, well, they'd give me corks. I'd get 25 or 30 corks, maybe fish with 10 of them. Mm-hmm. And the rest of them were just not. Later on, the quality control got better. Now that mirror lure is taking over, Mike Herring and, and Lowell Odom and Jay's all involved, they're yeah. really sweet. They're, they're super tuned and the hardware, the hooks and the, you know, I think of the hooks too, you know, that uh, we caught these fish on. Oh, my God. I cannot believe we landed some of these fish on the hooks we had. What saved us was that real spongy line we had, Chris, yeah, you know, that it cushioned the cushioned it. But now if you took those hooks right now on this braid line, I'm fishing right now to rip them out of their yeah. mouth every time, you know, you just spend out. Yeah. How'd you and Jay meet? Well, I think, uh, let's see, Jay, I think after I caught y'all fished a, a lot of years together, yeah, in together tournaments tournaments. just, yeah. just by catching a big fish, you know, and, uh, uh, I think that, uh, after Doug Pike caught that, those big fish that I talked to Jay a couple of times and he wanted to fish and I brought him over to bath and he caught that. Then we started fishing the tournament together and that was just incredible. You know, you know, just incredible. We fished the tournaments and, uh, just, just fishing with Jay in the tournaments. just we're, the confidence there. Is just, uh, I don't know what it is. We're the two of us together. we never have a, a moment. We don't think we're gonna catch a big fish. We're mm-hmm. just so positive and so excited about being together and, and being out there in the water. You know, the the first tournament we were back at Snoopy's at nine thirty with fifty five pounds. You know that down that deal. But yeah. <laughs> you know, I think Jay called a twenty nine inch fish that day. You know, <laughs> was that good? You know, it was insane. It, I've know? heard stories about you know uh, guys. Actually, I think Leroy Navarro shared that story mm-hmm. where they were up. You, they were up on a flat. They had found some fish, whatever it is, and. And all of a sudden, because uh, I was I was asking about so lunar and majors and minors and stuff like that, and he goes, "You know who is like the epitome of like understanding majors and minors is Jay Watkins and, mm-hmm. and Cliff Webb." And uh, he told me that story about one of the events that uh, mm-hmm. that y'all had fished and together. And all of a sudden, here comes Jay and Cliff coming right up. Yeah. Gets out the boat, catches a, uh, and I think y'all caught him up real good. And all yeah. of a sudden, left We're gone. And one, yeah. yeah, it's right there when they bid. And, you know, it's so funny because we we won that tournament. We kind of set a record on the on the weight, and uh, so the pressure was on next year. It says, "Hey, man, you got to fish the next year," and so the pressure on that next year to win two years in a row was really tough. And to was that the to, Bath and Bash? Bath and Bash, you know. Okay. And then the the second year, Tom Nix had passed away, mm. and so it was a memorial for Tom. And uh, Jay and I decided to fish it together, and uh, we started out gang bangers in the morning. We had some really good fish, but we needed one more fish. And it's two o'clock, and uh, we need one more fish bad. You know, we need one big fish bad. And uh, we'd left Bath, and then this big front came in. It's blowing like 35, 40 miles an hour of the northwest, which is the worst mm-hmm. possible conditions, you know. So Jay says, what do you think? And I says, well, you know, my dad was a game warden. There was a, a little pier over here on the King Ranch shoreline that they always set the big nets on there in a, in, a, in a west wind. They said the big fish came off this big point, and they would run down this point. I pull out on this pier, I get on this pier, I walk out and I put on a, a, a morning glory, a, a black with a chartreuse tail, fat boy. And uh, I walk out along the edge of that pier and Jay's next to me, you know, and uh, we throw out and I catch about a four pounder, you know, I thought oh, that's good, you know, but it's not big enough, you know. And uh, Jay, this, this, is, this gives me goosebumps when I think about what I said here and Jay's my witness. Uh, I said, Jay standing right to me and I said, you know, <clears throat> I said this out loud, Chris. I said, God, let me catch a big fish. I'll give 25% to the church. I threw that fat boy, it hit the water and twisted it once, caught an eight and a half pound, 30 inch trout. And <laughs> took it in and won that tournament. <laughs> Jay says, you took that? I said, that day I took that money to that church. <laughs> I said, I, I don't think the preacher was there. I had to find him and I gave him that cash. Here, buddy, here's cash, man. Well, you know? yeah, he's looking around <laughs> you know? like, don't worry about it. <laughs> you know, but anyway, that was just like chills come up your spine when you think of that, how weird that was is winds blowing out of the West. Just unbelievable. No bite, shut down, high pressure, just unbelievable and thump that corky once and thump like someone slapping the back of the head mm-hmm. thump, you know, and in mm. a big old eight and a half pound, 30 inch fish. And we won the tournament, you know, by I don't know how many pounds. And after that, I think Jay and I said, okay, we're done. You know, <laughs> we gotta quit yeah. fishing the tournaments, but That's yeah, he's cool. just a lot of fun to fish with, man. So we, um, I just went back home uh, and, and my dad is, is that person. Like 
we we will inevitably figure it out, right? Because right. we're we're constantly talking. But aside from that, there's we fished enough together. We have this like it's like a chemistry, right. you know what I'm saying? Of like just being able to understand what each other's doing. And so inevitably, even if we struggle, we'll figure it out. And that's the conf and that, that actually is instilling confidence in you alone, just by understanding that, Hey, us together, we're going to figure it out. And right. When you do it time after time after time, it just so happens to fig you know, do that. And so is there a certain, um, story that you guys had like in a tournament or, or fishing in oh, general? There's, there's so many with Jay though. God, he's just so funny, you know, just, just developing uh, that chemistry, you know? Yeah. You know, and just, uh, I, I think that the main thing is we never, ever, not one time ever thought we weren't going to catch a fish at every spot. That's just, we pull up there. Yeah, they're here. We're going to get them. You know, just, yeah. we were so positive. And I think that's what really helped us a lot is, uh, being so positive and, and, and Jay, no matter what condition, how bad things were, you know, still got 20 minutes. It ain't over yet. I'm not done yet. Yeah, you know, that's the attitude he had. Never yeah. give up. And that's what we did, you know. And uh, But, uh, you know, fishing with Jay was so much fun and, and listen to all these stories. We, You know, that's one thing about both of us been guiding for 40 years, and I'm on my 40th boat, and uh, we've so many things have happened in these boats, so many stories and mm-hmm. memories that people have made. And how many of my clients have I lost now that, you know, I have pictures of them that they're gone, you know, that I have so many memories with them. And I guess some of my best trophies are the letters I get from the people. You know, the, the boys, little kids and stuff that we spent memorable. Well, the best, one of the best days we ever had was fishing with you, Cliff. And, you know, my dad's mm-hmm. gone now. And I remember that day that you and I had with those big fish with him. And, he, you know, I talked about it. So those things are worth so much more than what you make at guiding. You don't make nothing at guiding. But the thing that you that happens in, in my situation is the people that I met and the, the opportunities that I had in the, in the wild and stuff was just unbelievable, Chris. Just uh, yeah. the people I met were just incredible, you know. So – in terms of like legacy and, and thinking about stuff and if you could kind of, you know, reflect on things, what, like what is something that you reflect on or you want to leave uh, in terms of like imparting wisdom to maybe some guides coming up in the industry or people that are participating in a fishery or whatever it is, if there's something that you could kind of pass on to our listeners, what would that be? Well, I think the one thing that uh, that people are so worried about getting a picture of a fish, showing it and, and being somebody Enjoy the day on the water. Uh, you know, you got your, your buddy there, your father, your family. Enjoy that person on the water. Get off your phone. Enjoy what that day has given you. Mm-hmm. So what if you didn't catch a big fish that day? You caught some fish. You had some fun. You know, enjoy that day. And, and you know, every day doesn't have to be about catching big fish. Every day doesn't have to be perfect. Uh, you know, enjoy the days you don't do so good. Mm-hmm. And then the days that you really get into fish, you know, that's that's those, those days you'll always remember and you just – and just remember this that you think the fishing is good now it's good now but just picture is it going to be like this five years from now can you do something now the generation now can we do something right now to bring this fish fishery up a little bit instead of back a little bit can we can we bring it forward a little bit can we uh after these freezes can we shut down some of these barges in the cut can we uh not not keep these fish you know I, one of the saddest things I, I saw the day after freeze I, I go down the land cut and uh these fish were trying to survive up in the grass. They they had their backs out of the water. You know these big giant trout the south end, and, and these these barges were going through like six deep, and they're running wide open. They're empty, and they're pushing this wake, and they pushed all those fish up a little farther up in the grass where they couldn't get back to the water to live. So, they survived the freeze. They survived all the mud in their gills and all that stuff in the freeze. They now they wanted to warm up. They got out of the deep water. They pulled up on the edge. Well, why couldn't we? make those barges just creep through there. Why mm-hmm. couldn't they go through there real slow? Why do they have to throw a wake and push the fish up on the shoreline where they can't get off? And it's bad enough we killed enough with the mud, you know, the mud, they're mudding up their gills going through. That's, I understand money talks, you know, I understand all that. But why, why is it so important that 20-mile stretch in the land cut, why can't there be a speed limit or some? I understand they can't shut them down money talks, but why can't they go through there slower mm-hmm. and not push these fish up on the shore or roll them up on the bottom? You know, what happens is they're laying on the bottom in the, in the, in the freeze and they're mudding up. Their, their gills are full of mud. They can't get it out. They don't have enough strength to push the mud out, so they choke on their own mud. And, you know, I went down with Clayton Thomas, one of the guys, and we just, you could not believe all the fish floating with their tails up and their head down because their head was full of mud mm-hmm. and all their tails are up. Well, that's fine. Those are going to kill. But the ones that did not have to get killed was the ones two or three days after the freeze that survivors that were pushed up there by a little bit of, of speed just to, they would have slowed down just a little bit, yeah. you know, and I just wish that 
that somebody would get on the board with that land cut because, man, we're going to have another freeze one day, and, and every year they say they do something about the land cut, they don't. And so that 20-mile that stretch with that deep water is where a lot of the fish go yeah. when it's cold, Chris. Sure. That's, where they, that's the only place they've got. You know, bath and shallow. So if we could protect that little 20-mile stretch for just a day or two, whatever it costs, you yeah. know, just to protect that, that's, a, that's one thing that just I just don't – I just really thought this time they would do something about it. But going down there and seeing that was just heartbreaking, Chris. Yeah. It was, you know. I bet. And, I mean, but even then, though, you know, we still do have some of those fish that actually did survive. Oh, they did. Oh, it, definitely. It, but thinking about – you know, all the stuff that that fish went through to survive, man, that yeah. fish is he genetically gifted that. or whatever yeah. it is, man, come on, just, just lean off him for a hot minute, let that yeah. fishery come back and then, yeah. you know, approach it in that capacity. So, but, uh, Mr. Cliff, thank you so much. Oh, well, gosh, thank you, Chris. For being on the podcast today. Um, I really sincerely and humbly, uh, mean, you know, just open up your house, uh, let me come in, just, you know, ask a few questions, relive some of those stories, and it's important for our, our followers and listenership to understand that those stories, your stories uh, exist and, and that they're here and and understand kind of like our trout fishing lineage and history uh, because inevitably we want to get that fishery back to yes. a positive, you know, incline versus a steady And we can do that, right? Chris. We can do that. It's possible. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of these, you know, we talk about the guys that uh, are, are doing things wrong. There's a whole lot of guys doing things right. Yeah. There's a whole lot of these young young anglers that are releasing fish and stuff like that and doing what they're supposed to do, you know? Uh, but these days of uh, what I call raping the environment, what it's all about me, all about me. Well, the all about me is going to catch you sooner or later. It's uh, pretty soon. The all about me is going to be no fish, mm-hmm. you know? So you really, we really got to back off and you know, so what if you don't get to put a bunch of fish in your freezer, you know, most time you don't eat them anyway. So if you can, like, keep a fish or one or two or something to eat it, but just, just mm-hmm. take them and put them in the freezer for six months and stuff. You know, this, this stuff, you just don't see that. Like we used to 10 years ago, I would get so many people in my boat say, yeah, we caught a bunch of fish and we froze and they freezer burned. We fed them to the cat. Like this kills me, man. Yeah. It's just, so I'm so glad that we dropped this limit down to five, you mm-hmm. know, and, uh, and the three for the freeze. I wish they'd have done the three limit all the way to Matagorda stuff. I think that would have helped us, but at least they did it. And, uh, it does help. And, and, and it's so funny because all these these guys that are, are fishing live bait now, uh, they're not having to buy nearly as much bait. They're saying my, my, my bills are so much cheaper because instead of buying, you know, 10 dozen croakers, I'm buying five dozen croakers because there's less fish, you yeah. know, and stuff like that. And uh, But it's, it's funny how cha- things have changed in that fishery, though, Chris, because the croaker guys are not doing as good as they normally do because the fish are so scattered. You know, they're mm. so scattered. They're not able to anchor up and sit there and catch them. My son is a guy too, which is, he's just a great guy, a great, great fisherman. And, uh, he uses live baby, he's popping cork and shrimp because he drifts and covers a lot more, more water. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he catches everything, drum, redfish, trout, whatever. And, uh, but the, the days of the croaker fishing for this next couple of years, are a little different right now. It's, uh, you see them sitting there now, they're all the guys are playing on their phone. They're not exactly, you know, yeah. thumping them like um, they used yeah, to. Yeah. So it's just a different story, man. Well, again, Mr. Cliff, thanks so much, sir. Uh, I really appreciate it. I understand we got to go meet. Uh, oh, yeah, we're going to have lunch with Jay, Jay and Lowell, man. That Lowell. sounds good, man. Yeah, so let's I, get... I'm going to make Jay buy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm done with that. I uh, appreciate it again, Mr. Cliff. Thanks hey, so well, much, Hey, thank sir. you for all you do, too, Chris, and uh, all you're doing for our trout and yes, stuff sir. you do. And, and thanks for being uh, in the military and watching after us, man. Yes, we sir. really appreciate it. Thank I you. appreciate it, sir. Thank you. Hey, for everyone else listening, I really appreciate it. Again, I want to thank Mr. Cliff Webb and uh, sincerely appreciate your listenership. Again, uh, huge shout out to our sponsors for the podcast, Texas Custom Lures, the original Custom Corky, Mirror Lure, uh, Real Sportswear, Down South Lures, and in Carbon Line. Uh, we really appreciate their their uh, support for the podcast and it allowing us to bring some of these stories back to life. And so, Again, without their support, none of this would be possible. So show them some love. And uh, until next time, guys, tight lines. God bless. And always remember, take what you need, release the rest. God bless.